Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, everybody. Bridget McGowan here, and welcome to today's episode of Own the Microphone. I have the pleasure of speaking with John Elzinger. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. John, I need to find out what was your life, what was your professional world before becoming a professional speaker? Yeah, long story. Um, let me try to make it short. Um, I started life um, in the ministry. And uh, I served two churches, one in Michigan and one that brought me out here to California. Uh, that wasn't working out so well. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, well, okay, now what? And um, I went into sales um, because, yeah, you know, speaking, teaching, selling, okay, it's kind of the same thing. Um, you're communicating. And so I uh, went into sales and that led into management. Um, I am a avid reader. I'm a passionate reader. I read every book I can get my hands on. So I began, you know, reading books about leadership and culture building and customer service while I was, um, you know, in the sales world, in the management world that led into leadership, leadership consulting, uh, coaching, personal coaching. Um, and um, so I was always in some way speaking. And in the sales world, I realized <clears throat> along the way, I realized, we, and I, when I became a manager, I was a better manager than, than I was a, a salesperson. But what I realized was that my key gift in sales was not sales. It was presenting. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if, if you had a product to present, um, I was, you know, I was really on top in terms of presenting a product. And um, along the way, also um, interspersed with that, I was always, um, you know, a churchgoer. I'm a believer. And um, I would always uh, take what I'd learned and I'd be teaching some classes at churches while I was doing this. And uh, then I got connected with a, a, a leadership consultant who was giving seminars. And I thought, yeah, okay. I'm, you know, I kind of started participating with him a little bit in that. And um, uh, that really, the culmination really, it happened later uh, for me in life. It, it was about 2011. Uh, I had done, before that, I had done some seminars here and there um, on, um, on culture building and, and within an organization. I'd done faith and life seminars, uh, the integration of faith and life and that, and that kind of thing. And, and so I kind of had tested the waters along the way. Um, but really the culmination came in 2011 um, which is a whole nother story of how I got there. But <clears throat> I began to work with a company called Pizza Ranch in the Midwest. And uh, they're a, an organization of about 210, 215 restaurants um, in 14 or 15 Midwestern states. And I was in the training department. I went in there into the training department and um, took all of the stuff that I had learned along the way, good and bad, and kind of honed it and began developing these leadership seminars in particular um, and, and 
I, I began teaching all of their managers, uh, their newly promoted managers, their new managers uh, about leadership, culture building and customer service. And, uh, and then um, at the same time, you know, began to make those offerings to other companies, organizations. And at the same time, uh, the church that I was attending asked me to, uh, to fill in uh, with its pastor now and then. And the responses that I got early on in that, you know, venture. So 2011, I'm what, 57, 58. So way later in life, I began realizing in comparison to other people, um, I can hold the platform. This is something I can now do with confidence. And, uh, and, in, and eventually at, at Pizza Ranch, at the corporate office, they made me what they called facilitation design manager, which means not only did I speak and present these seminars, but I coached other people on how to do that, how to speak. I, I, all, in fact, eventually, if there was any major presentation by any executive in the corporate office, um, I would set up critiquing sessions and they would kind of work through me on uh, delivering their message. And then I also coached some other people within the corporate office on how to deliver a good message. So that, yeah, long story. Uh, well, I love it. And I wish I had known you a long time ago because <laughs> pieces of your story remind me of part of my career in that I share with you off camera that I started my career teaching and I taught for a four-year uh, residential university, a two-year uh, commuter uh, um, community college that had a commuter population, if you will, as well as online. And then I transitioned and I was working at this ed tech company, John. And I remember one of the VPs there saw me present at a conference and he immediately said, Bridget, I want you to work with our district managers on presentation skills. Yeah. And I want you to do train the trainer sessions so that then they can teach these tenets of effective presentations to their reps. Yeah. And one thing led to another and my entire team was disbanded, you know, all kinds of changes and we were laid off and everything. But what you did with Pizza Ranch would have been something I would have wanted to do where I was the go-to person on all things presentations. And before you leave this building and go do a presentation, you must run it by me first. Yep. But I didn't have that. I don't know. It just didn't occur to me. But yeah. in the back of my mind, that would have been the dream job. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was, it was, First of all, it's a great company. I love the company, um, and it was uh, it was a job I loved like crazy. Um, and you know that kind of all ended with the pandemic. But uh, uh, kind of a side note to the story: I moved from Southern California to Northwest Iowa, where that company is housed, leaving behind my children and my grandchildren, and that was the hard part of that. And uh, so then after about seven and a half years, <clears throat> I moved to Henderson, Nevada, and I had a consulting agreement with them. And once a month, I would fly back and deliver uh, these management seminars um, until the pandemic hit. And then and now I moved back to Southern California to be my, my kids. So, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, as John indicated, he and his wife 
uh, have six uh, six children and nine grandchildren, and they That's live right. out in Seal Beach, California. John L. Zinger. I mean, I can't, why can't I get this right? It's a very easy last name. John L. Zinger is yeah. a compelling speaker, storyteller, and life and leadership coach. John has invested more than 45 years with organizations, big and small, profit and nonprofit. He has honest and real insights into leadership, culture building, and customer service. Additionally, as a Christian, John speaks about matters of faith and how to live a graceful, F-U-L-L, life. His passion is to help leaders become the leader everyone wants to follow by developing the leadership qualities people crave. His messages have changed the way people lead and the way people live. Your organization will, without a doubt, benefit from having John come in and speak. Now, early on, you indicated you are an avid reader. Yep. What would you say is a book that has a message that's just never left you and it shows up in your speaking or maybe some tenets of it show up in your presentations? What What's a book that, we, Madam, just put it simply, we all need to read? Well, um, wow, that's a that is a that is a really good question because I've led read literally thousands of books. I get it. I get it. It's a tough top of my mind, you know. Well, it, first of all, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey is a classic. Everybody should read that. Um, Simon Sinek's uh, Know Your Why. Yep. Probably that would be that would be probably the one because that bleeds if you know your why you can do who you are in the best possible way. You can contribute in the best possible way. Knowing your why uh, undergirds everything that you do. So um, I, I think that that is a significant book um, that I would recommend everybody read. Yeah. I was just on someone else's podcast, uh, less I think of less than an hour. Yes, less than an hour before you and I started. And one of the questions the host, the gracious host posed to me was, Bridget, what do people need to know if they're interested in starting a speaking career? And I told her, you need to figure out your niche. What is that thing you want to be known for? Yeah. And it boils down to, like you said, your why. Tell us, what's your why, John? Yeah, my why is uh, is multifaceted, frankly, uh, at this point in my life. But, um, you know, as you said in the in, in part of that introduction, um, my why is to help managers become leaders, not just managers, um, help them to lead effectively, passionately. Um, you know, I, I, I want that. I, I see the difference between um, you know, the, the manager, the leader, and, and then again, as, as I said before, how leadership literally affects everything in the organization. So, um, the, you know, that's why I wrote that book. I wrote a book called Leadership Qualities People Crave, uh, because over the years, I began realizing that <clears throat> there were a lot of leaders, a um, lot of leaders, maybe more than, than not, that seem to be effective, but are not that seem to be getting results, but aren't effective. Um, in other words, uh, they're crawling on the backs of their people rather than enabling their people. And, um, and so I, I, after seeing the distinction uh, between dysfunctional leaders and dysfunctional leadership styles, uh, I began teaching that 
and, and, and transitioning people to more of a servant leader style. And, and the difference is un, unbelievable. So that, that would be my why is to, is to develop, to disarm the dysfunctional leadership styles that people have, and we all have them, uh, uh, and, and equip them with more of a servant leader style. Can anyone become a servant leader? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody can. What's uh, the first thing that or the first step someone should take to become a servant leader? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> Let me put it to you this way. My cornerstone seminar is called the S factor. And the S stands for servant leadership. When I begin that seminar, I talk about six dysfunctional leadership styles that leaders seem to pick up along the way. Um, and, and they continue with it because they seemingly get, the, you know, they're getting the numbers, but people are leaving at the same time. And, and so uh, I, I felt that, you know, the first step is to get them to recognize and own their own dysfunctional leadership styles, which one that they grabbed onto or gravitated toward. Once I dismantle that, then I can um, kind of ingest into them what a servant leader is. So there's six dysfunctional leadership styles that I talk about. There's about 12 effective leadership styles that I want people to transition to. And uh, so that it, it, it's, it's not a simple answer. It's a complicated answer, a complex answer, because people are complex. So, um, I, you know, I kind of did a little run, run around there, but I hope that got you to where you wanted to go. Oh, I can boil it down to this, John. You got us there. First, find out who you are yeah. to then figure out how to be the person you need to be. Yeah, yeah. A, that, a lot of leaders, yeah. see, the, the problem with that, find out who you are, this goes back to the know your why thing. Yep. The problem with finding out who you are is there's a lot of leaders that think they're great leaders and they're not. They're not <laughs> effective. They're, they live their life in denial. And uh, no one has really exposed that to them because they're, most people are fearful of them. You know, it's a tiered, you know, we live in a tiered system that, that that's just the way it is. And so, you know, they want to progress. So, you don't, you don't, you got to walk on eggshells. You got to watch what you say. Um, and so these leaders who carry these dysfunctional leadership styles don't even know they're being dysfunctional, you know, and if, and if you bring it up, they might be in denial, but I did it in a way, I think, I hope that um, disarmed them. They received it, they evaluated it, and then they identified it the dysfunctional part of them so that they could move on um, uh, to becoming a more effective leader. In a little bit, you'll have the opportunity to ask me a question, John. For now, I need to find out, and you may have already answered this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Is there anything in your personal life or your work life specifically that made you a great speaker? And if so, what is it? Um, this is going to sound weird. Uh-oh. Brokenness. Hmm. Um, what made me, I think, a great speaker that I personally could not have been when I started speaking way 100 years ago was just the trials of life and the brokenness of life. 
and uh, things that I did wrong, um, things that damaged me, things that hurt me, uh, you know, situations that I, I get in, um, you know, you know, I've been through divorce, I, I left the ministry, I, um, you know, lost everything that I owned twice. Um, and all of those things, uh, all of those broken things in my life made me who I am. What I discovered when I began presenting this, and, and kind of a, this isn't a side note, this is a key to what you're talking about in terms of what makes a great speaker. What makes a great speaker, and I'm going to go back to your question, what makes a great speaker, simply put, is making an, an emotional connection with the people you're speaking to. The way you make an emotional connection is to tell stories. So when you have stories to tell, you are now talking heart to heart. You are tapping into the heart of another person with your heart. When you tell what's happened to you, they realize you're real, you're authentic, you can identify with them, and they identify with you. And now, now whatever you're presenting, they're in your world. They imagine yourself, they imagine themselves in your story because they've had stories like that. And, um, and so uh, that's true with great leaders. I think great leaders have been broken at one time or another. That's true with great speakers. Great speakers tell their story in relationship to the content that they're delivering. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question or not, but... <laughs> It does. It does. So many guests will share that stories are just that mental hook yep. and the data is fine and the research is great and the expertise is lovely. But if you don't have some kind of heart to heart connection, yep. you can lose your audience. Yeah. And it's not always in the form of stories that you're able to create the heart to heart connection. I mean, you just want to have that in there some kind of way where the audience is able to see themselves in you or yeah. see themselves in your circumstances, you know, but you just cannot get up there and be a robot. You can, but I don't know if they'll ask you back. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, John, what is your question for me? And. Well, great timing for that question, because my question for you is what trials have you experienced in your life that make you the speaker that you are? Right. So I am going through a lot of shifts and I'm wanting to focus more on that personal connection. I don't tend to share a lot about myself because I'm still trying to sort out things that I've learned late in adulthood that I should have known a long time ago. For instance, and in particular, I learned at the age of 31 that I was adopted. This was kept a secret from me. Everyone in the family knew, in the adoptive family knew, and everybody had been sworn to secrecy. I was adopted just after turning two years old. And I felt something wasn't quite right because, you know, you just don't fit in. And I even asked one time, 
the adopters when I was about 13, if I was adopted and they said no wow. and tried to put my mind at ease that all was well in the world. And it wasn't until 18 years later at the age of 31 that I reconnected with someone from the adoptive family. And she told me, she said, you know how you used to joke about thinking you were adopted because you didn't look like anyone. You didn't act like anyone, think like anyone. Girl, you were, you are. Wow. And I kept a poker face, John, but I couldn't get her out of my home fast enough so I could get to searching and calling and researching and figuring out, was there any truth to this? And indeed there was. So that is one of my personal pieces wow. that I would like to play into my speaking. I think there's something powerful there. By the way, I was adopted. Get out. And no, I was adopted and I have um I have a better story. I have a I have a more positive story about my adoption, but um I um yeah. Yeah, adoption being adopted actually is part of my story and and I tell it in different ways um now uh, you know from where I'm at um and um so yeah it's uh it's about identity and who you are and um who you're connected to and um you know I I, I recently I'm, I'm teaching a class in my church and we've been talking about that very subject about adoption. Um, I mean, in this case, about being adopted into God's family. Uh, but, but I relate that to my own life and what it meant to me to be adopted. But um, I was, I knew I was adopted from an early age. I didn't, I didn't experience what you experienced there. There's something powerful there for you to tap into, I think. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, for we sure. could take, we could talk longer about that subject maybe in another time, but but um, and and I could help you unpack it maybe a little bit, but yeah. Um, uh, so feel free to call me on that. But um, uh, because I, I I think there's there's part of that there's the rest of the story you're not telling yet, and you have to be prepared to tell the rest of the story, which means all of the other people in your life have to be on board with that. So yeah, but I. I, I have a very favorable uh, view of adoption, very, very favorable view of adoption. But having said that, <laughs> uh, even a few months ago, I began learning because uh, somebody took a DNA test, you know, I think it was 23andMe or whatever. And I never really looked up who my bi biological parents were. Well, now all of a sudden, even at the age of 70, I'm finding out some siblings out there that I had that I didn't know I had, but yeah. 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 Well, I will take you up on that. I, I may put you on speed dial, John, you said I can call you. So, yeah. you know, I've got all your information since you came Absolutely. on the podcast. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's seriously something that I want to weave into my speaker perspective. I mean, actually my speaker perspective is going to completely change quite frankly. And it's just, as you said, there's a lot of unpacking to do because I don't want it to just be, Oh, this crazy story of, 
not knowing I was adopted and so on and so forth. No, what are the lessons that I want people to take away from this? What what do I want them to build on? What aha moments do I want? How do I want to move them, not just emotionally and affectively, but behaviorally? What do I want you to do differently? And cognitively, what do I want you to think differently? And so that is the hard part. And then again, like you said, just sorting through it all because it is an identity issue. I was 31 years old, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's a lot to deal with. Oh my goodness. And, and all the while, I'm moving forward. I'm going to work. No one's the wiser. I'm compartment, compartmentalizing. Yeah. And it's tough, right? Because I've still got bills to pay. Uh, the boss isn't going to say, oh, take as much time as you need. John, it took me seven years before I even told people that wow. I was adopted, right? Who's wow. going to hold a job for me that long? So I have to keep it yeah. moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But yeah, yeah. Well, wow. Wow. Well, I look forward to our conversations there. Okay. Listen, everybody, make sure you visit John's website. It is John Elzinga, and I'm going to put it in the notes. So just check the notes if you're driving or you cannot access a pen and paper right now. Visit John Elzinga. And I need you to get a copy, as a matter of fact, more than one copy of every single one of his books. Give them out as gifts. One is Leadership Qualities People Crave. The next one is 46 Days to Become the Leader God Wants You to Be. And then finally, thank God I'm not a Pharisee, or am I? (laughs) So visit John's website, johnelzinga.com. Get his information so that you can bring him to your team and create the kind of leaders everybody wants. John, what else do our listeners need to know in order to make sure they are crushing it on the stage? Yeah, I think I think one of the um, because I was a facilitation design manager and responsible for helping to critique people's presentations. I think that that's. Uh, got to be top of the list. They have to have um, uh, a group of people who are going to critique their message unapologetically, telling them like it is, um, advising them uh, to you know maybe usually hone, hone it down. One of you know one of the one of the biggest errors is you know is uh, that, that I find in people trying to present something is either they're presenting too much stuff, you know it's an information dump, or they're going way too fast. That's a very common one, very, way too fast. Um, and, um, and, and those are really easy things, frankly. It doesn't sound like it, but they're really easy things to learn. And um, if you can learn the power of pace and pause, uh, you know, in your presentations, uh, you know, to slow down, sometimes to even stop um, when, you're, when you're about to make an important point, stop before that, make sure you got the audience's attention and then deliver the point or the story or whatever you're delivering. But uh, to have a critiquable environment, I think is significant uh, because um, literally everybody's presentation has to be critiqued. And, and uh, you know, I think even the best pros will, uh, you know, have their presentations critiqued by somebody. I like that phrase, critiquable environment, because... Oftentimes people will ask family or friends 
to give them feedback on their presentations. And my argument is they don't have either the expertise or the heart to tell you that it's not a good presentation, or maybe they do have the heart to tell you, but they don't have the expertise to tell you what to fix or how to fix it. So what's the point? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's the big thing when we're, when we're having our best friends critique it, they're like, how was it? Oh, that was great. (laughs) When when it wasn't, you know, there may be, I'm, I'm sure there's something in almost everybody's presentation that is significant, but the way they deliver it, is everything and and so you can't get your significant point across unless you understand what makes that going to make that effective what's going to deliver it into their heart and their mind shameless plug john talked about slowing down how people speaking too quickly or moving through the content too swiftly is a challenge so shameless plug i need you to get your copy of real talk what other experts won't tell you about how to make presentations that sizzle by yours truly. And I have a section in there and I'm paraphrasing the title, but I believe the section is something along the lines of nine pauses your presentation needs. Yeah. Like, like John said, insert those pauses. If you're about to make a really important point, pause. So I give you nine pauses that deliver a different effect. Each one has a different feel get that book, Real Talk, second edition, find those nine pauses and use them. <laughs> I think that is just so profound. Uh, it just, it seems so simple, but it is so difficult for a, a new presenter uh, or somebody that, that they don't live in that world. Maybe they're a manager or a leader in their company, or their organization, and they have to present. But uh, just to learn how to pause is so powerful in your presentation. That one little thing. I, I, yeah, I hope they do get that. I hope they yes. get that. Yeah. Yes. It, it's huge. It's huge. And I've had to work on it. I was not the master of pauses in 2001 when I started this. I am quite f- confident I was going through content too quickly and making all kinds of bumbles and stumbles, I'm quite sure. So it's really something that you kind of work through and, and hone over time. Yep. John, anything else? Anything else? Um, you know, uh, I, I think, I, I just think it just comes down again to the emotional connection. You know, there is, other, there is another thing that kind of goes with pace and pause. And, and, you know, most speakers, most presenters, have some kind of accompanying PowerPoint. And in addition to speaking an information dump, they have an information dump up on the screen. And so to reduce what you have on the screen to two or three points, if you have an image that speaks louder than words, you know, so so put put an image there and then tell them what the image is about rather than, you know, 24 sentences on one PowerPoint. I mean, you know, and I've seen that a thousand times. So Again, these are very little things uh, to hone your presentation and make it more powerful. And you don't have to feel stressed out and married to a script if you just have this great image and then you take off from there. But I'm right there with you when you have all those words on a slide. And remember, the audience can read faster 
then you can read that slide to them. They're yep. sitting there silently. They're, they're at the end of the slide, last word, and you're in the middle and it's annoying. So, yeah. You know, and, it, and there, there's another thing going back to the story idea. Yeah. People might say, well, I don't have stories. Um, there are plenty of stories from film, you know, little video clips that you can play that tie into who you are or the point that you're trying to make. So let me give you an example. <clears throat> In my S factor uh, message, um, I make a point that servant leaders see the best in the broken so the broken can be their best. And what I, what I do is I play a video clip of the movie Seabiscuit. Remember that, the, the horse movie about, about Seabiscuit and, and, uh, and, and everything that the trainer and the new owner and the jockey went through uh, to uh, kind of rebuild this horse who had been broken. But the trainer basically said, I think the quote was, you don't throw a whole life away just because he's been beat up a little bit. And, and so um, I make that point, servant leaders see the best in the broken so the broken can be their best. Play that movie. And then that taps into my story, my story about how uh, this old broken down old man was revived once again. And people are sitting there in the audience, seeing themselves, their brokenness, their stories are going right in front of them. So we don't always have to have um, our story, we can tag on to somebody else's story that taps into their heart and their mind, which delivers the message you're trying to deliver. That's a brilliant, brilliant recommendation, because how many times do you hear people say, I don't have any stories or the stories that I have, nobody wants to hear them. They're boring. So take advantage of the hard work Hollywood has put into yeah. Yeah, <laughs> entertaining yeah, us yeah. and yeah, connect it to your, your big points. John L. Zinga, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been fantastic. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the listeners. Make sure you visit John's website. Again, it's in the show notes. Grab copies of his books. Get him on your stages. I'm Bridget McGowan. Until next time, make sure you always own the microphone. Mm -hmm.